Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Looks good. Okay. Good. Well, uh, you know, as Where's usual. the heroin? Where's the heroin? <laughs> <laughs> Weren't we going to actually like, practice this thing, I think? Hey, podcast listeners. Welcome back to another installment of the Brainways Podcast, a show about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and history that comes with it. I'm Jim Siegler, your host. And this week on the program, we've got heroin. 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 Street names like Bud Ice. Not like physically we've got heroin, but rather Mike Rubenstein and I are talking about the neurologic consequences from a particular type of heroin exposure. 21-year-old male in cardiac arrest. 69-year-old female. Possible overdose. A different face of the opioid epidemic. Like the heroin epidemic in America. America's heroin epidemic. The of heroin users has nearly doubled in just the past three years. There's a very specific kind of neurotoxicity that occurs after heroin inhalation. And we'll spend the next 20 minutes or so talking about a patient that Mike met and review all that we know about this unusual process. So, uh, Mike, you had a case? Yes. Yes, I have an interesting case that I didn't know an extensive amount about before I took care of the patient. And it was just kind of very interesting, very interesting name. And it made me want to look up literature and research a little bit. So yeah, it kind of brings you back to what got you interested in neurology in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I think that's how we learn much of neurology. You know, we can always sit and look, read books and and go through our lectures and Learn, try to learn about various syndromes, but when you actually take care of a patient and then you go home after you've taken care of that patient and you like look back in your books that you probably have read several times before, but you really never had that same kind of connection, that's how I learn most everything is like being able to relate it to the patients that I care for. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I think that it's hard for me not to leave the hospital without a sense of curiosity about a patient that I have. And the only way that I plan to ever learn about it is by independent study of whatever that topic was, whatever that disease was or the treatment was. I'm not going to go back and read a book chapter every night from Adams and Victor or Harrison's. No, but looking up those specific things and I mean, even using up to date to refresh, you know, just to refresh your memory, even on things that you may have taken care of before, just to look back and, and uh, you know, sometimes those things are updated, sometimes there's new treatments. Uh, so I think it's really helpful. And this is an interesting topic that you're bringing up today, this uh, this concept that we'll get into, because it's one that really has not been all that updated since its original description back in 1982. But before we even get to that, why don't we just start with the case? So this is a uh, young woman who came to us from an outside hospital, was transferred, and she was a woman who basically had a history of uh, both heroin and uh, methamphetamine use. And we had very little history. Uh, she was found down in the woods by report by her boyfriend for an unknown period of time. And she had an altered mental status uh, and she was poorly responsive. And they gave her Narcan and it did not do anything to uh, increase uh, her level of consciousness. So yeah, starting off with a, an unresponsive or an uptunded patient in the field is very different from somebody who's unresponsive or uptunded in the hospital. And always remembering blood pressure, vital signs, looking for hypoglycemia and intoxication. Those things are quickly and easily reversible. So Narcan, D50 in the field are usually some of the first things that emergency responders go to. So this was not a particularly responsive case. Correct. So what happened next? 
So she was transferred to our hospital and she slowly woke up, but we had uh, imaging studies that were very unusual imaging studies that didn't look like um, necessarily what we would expect from, say, a hypoxic injury. And they were quite unique. And so that led us to considering a diagnosis of possibly uh, a heroin inhalation leukoencephalopathy. So that's kind of an interesting concept. And how would people discover or decide that they should inhale heroin? Injecting heroin is not good enough. Let's inhale it. Well, it goes back many, many years. So after I, you know, this is obviously something that I didn't know ahead of time, but I just found it very interesting because the name of the syndrome that we refer to it as is, is simply chasing the dragon. The smoking part of it was something that was not in the United States for many years, but there's different ways to smoke heroin. And there's you can either smoke heroin or you can inhale the heroin vapors. And the chasing the dragon comes from particularly uh, inhaling vapors. The smoking part of it was something that they is believed to be in, in Southeast Asia anyways, in the 1950s and 60s, it was a way to avoid any uh, hepatitis and later AIDS by having to inject heroin. So what about this patient's particular presentation made you think that this was chasing the dragon as opposed to just some other routine method of intoxication? Well, she wasn't intoxicated with heroin because, um, you know, using Narcan didn't wake her up. It could have been other things. It could have been uh, had a hypoxic brain injury, infection, or other things. But she was evaluated extensively for all other causes, and nothing was found. Obviously, we can't rule out a hypoxic encephalopathy. But then when the imaging studies came back and showed a very particular imaging pattern that is characteristic of chasing the dragon, that became our leading diagnosis. Mike went on to tell me that when the patient finally regained consciousness several days later, she initially denied heroin inhalation. But then several days later admitted that she had been smoking heroin. Uh, and, had and not just that she'd been smoking heroin right before she was found unconscious, but that she'd been doing this for a while, months even. So that's interesting because, you know, usually when we think about complications of intoxication, it's usually upon first attempt at that intoxication, whereas this case was very clearly somebody who tried it a couple times, had done okay, or at least survived without any neurologic sequelae, and now comes back with new neurologic symptoms after multiple attempts. Is that pretty characteristic, would you say? Yeah, I mean, this is something that in the initial cases that were described, I mean, there were significant intervals between when people did inhale heroin vapor. And so that there were in the initial patients that were described in the United States would go by several weeks before the patients would present. And uh, interestingly, the, the clinical syndrome of chasing the dragon or the, the heroin in, inhalation leukoencephalopathy is one that is, um, that is very unique in that the disorder can progress after patients present, so a certain percentage of patients. The original case descriptions of heroin inhalation leukoencephalopathy in the U.S. were exactly as Mike had described, and similar to his own case. Their features were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1997, and you can find this reference in the show notes. The first patient, a 21-year-old woman, had reported six months of heroin inhalation before she came to clinical attention with a kind of a rapidly progressive atypical Parkinsonism, bradykinesia, ataxia, ebulia, dysarthric speech. 
over the next several weeks, despite abstinence from heroin or any other substance use, she became mute, spastic, and nearly quadriplegic. The second patient was a 40-year-old gentleman who had only recently begun inhaling heroin vapor five weeks before his hospitalization. He had stopped three weeks prior to his evaluation, but came in eventually because of progressive symptoms. Dysarthric speech, ataxia, broad-based gait, and irregular eye movements that were described as psychotic pursuit. Both patients underwent MRI of the brain, which showed the characteristic findings of heroin inhalation neurotoxicity, similar to what was seen in Mike's patient. So what was this patient's particular imaging profile like? So essentially what she had was she had white matter changes in the cerebellum and then up into the hippocampi and posterior internal capsule, which is essentially what is seen with heroin inhalation-related leukoencephalopathy. You see this distinct pattern. That's the most characteristic pattern. You can see more extensive white matter changes throughout the brain, but the most extensive is cerebellar white matter changes and posterior internal capsule. And this kind of goes back to probably more board review topics, but as far as what I was taught as a resident was that chasing the dragon, the imaging is not always as severe as the phenotype. Well, imaging will become, you, you will eventually see that imaging. And so, you know, you can see very unimpressive imaging to start with, and then the imaging will progress, you know, within weeks typically of a patient's presentation, they'll have very, very classic looking imaging. Our imaging was pretty classic within days of her admission to the hospital. In addition to these classic and progressive subcortical white matter changes that we see in Chasing the Dragon, there's a distinct pathology as well. Distribution, it's unique in the pathology that it's a, a spongiform leukoencephalopathy that you see. Which we saw from one of the two earliest cases in the U.S., who underwent brain biopsy, given how obscure and rapidly progressive the neurologic deterioration was. The pathology report documented a spongiform vacuolar white matter degeneration, a finding that was consistent with the original case series published in Lancet, 1982. Um, you can see that in other toxicities, but again, it's the, it's the presentation. The patient who presents with progressive cerebellar findings and spasticity after heroin inhalation. In, in many cases, the progression. Our patient did not go on to progress. She stabilized. And after a few months, with aggressive physical and occupational therapy, she even improved a little bit. But this is not always the case. Well, there are three phases of the syndrome. And so um, when patients initially present, they may just present with cerebellar features, dysarthria and ataxia. Akesthesia, or a compulsion to move. Accompanied by apathy and bradyphrenia. Again, this is only the first phase. And then they may go on to progress from there to where they present with hyperkinetic movements, uh, agitation. This would be the second phase. Essentially kind of a spasticity. With associated gait impairment. And a tremor. Kind of like an atypical Parkinsonism. Only it progresses rapidly where patients could develop. Pathologic reflexes with hypertonic hemiplegia. Or even quadriplegia. And become febrile. With about half of these patients progressing to the third phase described as stretching spasms, akinetic mutism, hypotonic paresis, respiratory failure, central pyrexia, and eventually, they die. 50% of patients will go on to the intermediate phase, and then about another 50% of those or a quarter of the total will go on to a terminal phase. Is there any research to suggest that there are therapies available for these patients, or is it just kind of a watch and wait and kind of hope things get better? Well, the only therapy that has been entertained that is, you know, in the literature 
was essentially using uh, an antioxidant. Uh, Often using several. Vitamin C, vitamin E, but more importantly, coenzyme Q, something like 30 milligrams four times a day. There's no definitive kind of underlying uh, etiology to the whole process uh, or, you know, what this process is, but it's believed to be uh, uh, that it causes a toxic effect on the mitochondria. This was suggested by one of the earliest reports using magnetic resonance spectroscopy, where brain lactate peaks corresponded to the white matter injury. Giving an antioxidant allowed patients, they felt, to uh, be more likely to stabilize uh, and not to progress. Unfortunately, there's no randomized evidence to support this, only that some of the reported patients who were given antioxidants like vitamin C, vitamin E, and coenzyme Q tended to stabilize early, and some even made substantial neurologic recovery months later. But some patients stabilized with only supportive measures. In the one case uh, in the United States, the one initial report in the United States, they did use coenzyme Q. And that patient survived. So, we have a medical condition, a rapidly progressive spongiform encephalopathy with no apparent cause, somehow triggered by heroin vapor inhalation, dragon chasing, and a possible treatment using an antioxidant cocktail. A treatment, mind you, that has no FDA approval for the treatment of any medical condition. All right, I think that catches us up. How did we figure this out? Well, the first heroin inhalation, which we we really haven't mentioned yet, but is a mechanism where you basically heat the heroin up on tinfoil. In the earliest case series, I think it was actually aluminum foil. In either case. It's actually a creased piece of tinfoil. You heat it up with a match or with a candle or a lighter. You heat the solid heroin powder until the heroin sublimates. And then you try to inhale the concentrated heroin vapor. Now, interestingly, I've seen references to where the name Chasing the Dragon came from, and there's numerous, because what you do is you use a straw to essentially inhale the smoke or fumes that are coming off of the heroin. Uh, and I've seen different references to what is the dragon. And uh, you know there have been references that refer to the, the smoke as being the chasing the dragon, chasing the smoke with the straw. And then the other one is that when you heat the heroin up on the tinfoil, it turns into a little blob that essentially is, you know, runs around on the tinfoil. And that with your uh, lighter or or, um, candle underneath it, you're kind of chasing that little blob and trying to heat it up more. Um, So do not try this at home, kids. (laughs) Yeah. These are pretty specific instructions, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we should have an age limit on your podcast. (laughs) And so basically, this started in the 1950s um, in Southeast Asia. And then it uh, went from the from the 1950s and 60s, and then into the 70s, it kind of traveled to other areas. And the first reported cases of this syndrome were in 1982, an article of 47 patients in Amsterdam. We would call that an outbreak nowadays. Yeah, and it was considered an outbreak, actually, because um, there was a lot of work that was done in trying to isolate a toxin. They felt initially that this 
obviously this has to be some toxin that was mixed in with the heroin. Uh, and then these people inhaling it, you know, kind of had this toxicity. And uh, nothing was found. So they, they went through, they analyzed all of the samples. You know, they in Amsterdam, they went around, collected all the heroin samples they could find. And they analyzed it and were unable to find any unifying substance that was in the heroin that would have caused this. You know, they, they actually contacted the World Health Organization, and in their article, they write, The disorder seems to be unique to the Netherlands on the basis of information which was provided by the World Health Organization, Geneva, Interpol, Paris, and the Centers for Disease Control, Atlanta. So nobody else had seen it up until that point. That sounds really scary. Very scary, especially when 25% of the people that leads yeah. to death. And the, and, the, and the problem is, is that when these patients come in the hospital, is that they may be awake and they may be, um, you know, talking and, uh, and uh, communicating, but uh, you have to tell a family that in a significant percentage of patients, they're going to go on and progress to death. Prognostically, among survivors, who would account for maybe 75% of patients who develop heroin inhalation leukoencephalopathy, some patients make it out with relatively little neurologic disability, maybe some mild spasticity or cognitive impairment. But it's impossible to know who will do well and who won't. Uh, so yeah, there doesn't seem to be a dose um, a dose relationship. It doesn't seem to be like a chronicity length of time that people have been doing it. You know, it reminds me I, I had a patient. And while some patients may make a good functional recovery, radiographically, the white matter changes on head CT or MRI, they don't tend to improve over time. So where are we now? What progress have we made over the more than 25 years of encountering patients with this very unique form of neurotoxicity? Unfortunately, there's been little progress in our understanding of the pathophysiology. As of 2019, there's no known mechanism, no animal model, no proven treatment, no ongoing randomized clinical trials, and luckily, not all that many patients. If you were to search PubMed using the terms heroin inhalation leukoencephalopathy or chasing the dragon, you would find maybe 20 or 30 medium quality papers describing the neurotoxicity following heroin inhalation most of them being case reports. So while it's a horrifying condition to see, a patient comes in after using heroin hours, weeks, maybe months earlier, and they neurologically deteriorate in spite of all your best efforts, thankfully, we don't come across these cases that frequently. Well, very interesting case. Thanks for sharing, Mike. Thank you. That's all we've got for you on Brainwaves this week. As always, you can find more information on what was discussed in the show notes of each podcast, so be sure to check them out. The program this week was produced out of Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it was produced by myself, Jim Siegler, and Mike Rubenstein. Music was courtesy of Heftone Banjo Orchestra, John Bartman, Kai Engel, and Soft and Furious. Sound effects by Daniel Simeon and Mike Koenig under a Creative Commons license. I'm Jim Siegler, and I'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.